Good morning. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My name is uh, Paul the Apostle. Yes, that Paul the Apostle. And if I think there's some Bibles around there. If you've uh, read one of those before, you might have heard of me. And I'm overjoyed to be with you today here in Worcester. Is that how you, uh, is that how you say it? Uh, boy, it's cold here compared to uh, into, uh, the, the weather I'm used to, and that's why I'm wearing the, this hat. It's the only reason why I'm wearing this hat this morning. <laughs> now, I know many of you may be asking, how is it the, that the Apostle Paul, born in the, in the first century, is speaking to a church in 2019? Well, the explanation's a little bit complicated, and I feel like I would bore you with the technical details, but basically... I went into that, and uh, in Philippi, and suddenly I was here. But the kind of the strange thing is, um, it's bigger on the, on the inside than it is on the outside. But I, that's a story for another time. Well, anyway, uh, in case you're wondering where uh, your pastor is this morning, he actually we kind of switched places uh, today, and he went back in time in the ancient world. While I came up here to uh, to guest speak for you. And he actually texted me a couple pictures last night to, uh, to say how things were going. Let me see if I can show those to you here this morning. Uh, that was him uh, in the lion's den. Then uh, with Moses on the Ten Commandments. And then he happened to, to find uh, Jesus and the, and the disciples. So there you go. You can talk to him about that when he, get, when he gets back. So when I arrived in Worcester, I was not exactly sure what I would talk to you about today. However, as I started to look around and explore the state of Christianity in 2019, there was one subject that jumped out at me, and that is, what does it mean to be the church, the, the body of Christ? Now, people from the, the first century wrestle with this issue, but I think you guys are even struggling with it more. And so I wanted to talk about this question at, at two different levels. One is at the local church. What does it mean for Cana to be the, this, this uh, local body of Christ here in Worcester? And then the universal church. What does it mean for Christians around the world uh, to be the body of Christ? I say this in love, but as an outsider to the modern era, my concern is that you guys are missing the mark on these levels. And that's why my challenge for you today is to press the reset button on both of these local and universal levels and embrace what I'm calling the body 2.0. So first of all, let's talk about the local church. And the focus on that is that the local church should be intimate. Listen to what I wrote to my friends at Philippi in a recent letter. I wrote to them and I said, I thank God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of my partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry on to completion into the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I hope you can see how I feel about the Philippi church from, from this passage, from this letter. But to be frank, 
trying to fully express my, my relationship with them in English is a bit of a struggle for me. So we have this really close and intimate friendship, but I don't think that really translates to a modern audience. The Greeks and the Romans, we take friendship with a kind of serious and commitment that it's probably hard to fully appreciate in 2019. The folks in Philippi are more than just friends. They're truly family to me. And that's precisely why I can be so effective with them as a mentor and a teacher. The Greeks and Romans, probably much like you today as well, tend to believe people more than just arguments. In other words, it's a relationship between people that usually has a bigger impact than the logic of a conversation. For example, if a few weeks ago, I had a chance to go to Athens and preach to a crowd of philosophers and intellectuals. I had no relationship with these people, and so why, while my logical defense of the gospel persuaded a few people there, I had little pick impact on everybody else. But when I speak to my friends in Philippi or Thessalonica about the gospel, they listen because of the, who I am as a person and my relationship that I have with them. So going back to that verse that I wrote, let's go back to, to verse 4 and 5. I always pray with joy because of your partnership or koinonia in the gospel from the first day until now. So the Greek word I use here is koinonia. It's translated here in, in English as partnership, and then often other times of the New Testament, it comes, uh, it's translated as fellowship. But I don't really like either of those translations. Koinonia is much more powerful than just this English word fellowship. It literally means a, a communion, a, part, a participation of people together in God's grace. Koinonia describes a community of believers who willingly covenant together to share in common, to be in submission with each other, to support one another or to bear one another's burdens, and to build each, up, build each other up in relationship with the Lord. It's our common union. You folks at Cana, as followers of Jesus Christ, let me be perfectly clear, you are called to life in community and to live in relationship with one another. Not just 90 minutes on Sunday. I'm talking about a deep investment in each other's lives throughout the, throughout the week. I recently heard a speaker say that our commitment to the church is indistinguishable from our commitment to Christ. I think that is a no-brainer statement for the churches in the Roman world that I'm from, but I think in the churches for the 21st century, that sentiment is probably met with surprise, hesitation, or maybe even skepticism. But I challenge you to wrestle with that statement, that our commitment to the church is indistinguishable from our commitment to Christ. Speaking to that point, Charles Colson wrote, Many Christians have been infected with the most virulent virus of modern American life, radical individualism. They concentrate on personal obedience to Christ as if all that matters is Jesus and me, but in so doing, miss the point altogether. For Christianity is not a solitary belief system. There's no such thing as Christianity apart from the church. And I think if you read through my letters that I write in the New Testament, that really comes across, that, that the church is an implicit part of what it means to be a believer. So coming back to Cana, does this describe you, a communion, sharing in common and being in submission with one another to support one another and to build each other up in relationship with the Lord? 
In other words, is your commitment to each other as it should be? Do, we prior, do you prioritize being here on Sunday morning on a week-in, week-out basis? How committed are you to getting together with others during the week on a more intimate level? And how committed are you to be involved in different parts of Cana, whether it's children's ministry, music, hospitality, special programs, or Sherpas? Life in the 21st century, I see as I come back, is certainly busy. And I know everyone can, has perfectly legitimate excuses why it's hard to be involved more. But as an outsider, my gentle, gentle pushback is how you spend your time does indicate your priority, priorities. Imagine what a world, or excuse me, imagine what a church of just 60 people that are fully committed to each other could do in this world. I've seen such a dedication change whole regions of the Roman world, and the same is possible here in Warcester, Massachusetts. So continuing on, my friend and fellow apostle John wrote, what I have seen and heard we announce to you so that you may have koinonia with us, and indeed our koinonia is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. So you see a little bit what John is getting at here, that koinonia, this communion, mysteriously embraces both the horizontal or communion with each other here, as well as the vertical, communion with God. In fact, true koinonia becomes a foreshadowing of heaven itself. Author John Ratzinger explains this. He says, in all human love, there is an implicit appeal to eternity, even though love between two human beings can never satisfy that appeal. In Christ, God enters our search for love and its ultimate meaning and does so in a human way. God's dialogue with us becomes truly human since God conducts his part as a man. Conversely, the dialogue of human beings with each other now becomes a vehicle for the life everlasting, since in the communion of saints it is drawn up into the dialogue of the Trinity itself. And he finishes that thought by saying, this is why the communion of saints is the exact point where eternity becomes most accessible for us. Eternal life does not isolate a person, but leads him or her out of isolation into true unity with their brothers and sisters and the whole of God's creation. And that's probably one uh, paragraph or two paragraphs there that, to unpack and probably could spend the whole morning on that because it's pretty amazing in terms of what some of the implications for that are. But when I talk about the body, this body 2.0, I'm talking about this a local church that is more than just friendly. It's an intimate family and ultimately this true reflection of the Trinity. And in the end, this is your choice, Cana. What kind of church are you going to be? So the local church is intimate and the universal church is united. Well, when I arrived in 2019 and began to survey what you guys have been up to, perhaps my biggest shock though is a complete lack of unity inside the modern church. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the Christian church in the United States has arguably never been as fragmented as it has been over the past decade. And I think it's a combination of four things. I think it's this extreme political polarization. You know, you have conservatives on one side and progressives and liberals on, one, on the other side. 
and there's not room in the middle anymore. I mean, both sides have these litmus test things that if you're not fully in one of their camps, you're out of their camps. The second is there's many controversial issues that interweave politics, economics, morality, and faith, and uh, it becomes kind of confusing as far as that goes. And then you add to that new forms of communication, so social media that just fuel the fire and make productive dialogue even harder. And then finally, it's that age-old tendency for Christians to confuse politics with faith, and that's something that's not just something in the 21st century that's been happening for 2,000 years. But this combination of this explosive mixture of these has produced a fireball of fragmentation inside the modern church. There's no unity at all, and there's really no attempt set at unity. There's a, and if you start to dive deeper, you can see such a very uh, a deep mistrust and cynicism towards people in the church that one doesn't agree with. So Christians on both sides of the, of the spectrum have these litmus test issues, and they're usually closed-minded to even discussing uh, with someone who doesn't agree with them. Everyone is convinced that they're in the right. But are they? If we open up the pages of the Bible, we're going to start to see a much different picture. So let's just take a quick look at some of these verses. John writes, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. I wrote to the Romans in uh, Romans 15, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God, the Father, and of our Lord Jesus Christ. I write to the Corinthian church in uh, my second letter to them. I say, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full uh, restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. And then I wrote to the church in, in Ephesus. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort, every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So as you can see, the other apostles and I are very outspoken on the need for unity. However, there's one particular passage I want to dive into this morning because I think it especially relates well to the modern church. And this is something that, uh, that we read just a few minutes ago from my first letter to the Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 13. Let me just read that one more time just to, to reset that. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and there no, be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some of Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, as we jump into this, there's one thing I want to highlight in verse 10. So, what do I say? I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, how do I do that? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
that's basically the strongest way I know how to. Um, you know, in other words, stressing that this is a big deal. This isn't some casual tip or suggestion I'm making in the midst of, of this chapter. And what am I appealing for? The next verse really dies into that. To agree with one another, that there be no divisions, to be perfectly united. Now, I'm going to dive into that in a minute. So just hold on on that. We're going to come back to that after we first talk about the next verse. The root cause of why I'm talking about the need for unity in the first place. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Now my hunch is that the word quarrel probably comes across as a spat or a disagreement or an argument, uh, but that does not fully convey the depth of what was going on in the church in Corinth. Instead, the actual word I use, the Greek word I use, is the root is uh, for quarrel is Eris, which is the uh, goddess who excited people to war and whose brother was Eris, the Greek god of war. So I was using some very uh, uh, graphic language, as you can see, to talk about this bitter uh, battle that was raging inside the Corinthian church. It wasn't just a little misunderstanding. So continuing on to verse 12, this is where talking about I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. You know, you can see that the church was divided into different camps. Follow Paul, I follow Apollos, follow Cephas, which was the Jewish name for Peter, and then I follow Christ. Now, when you read my letters, make sure not just to take what I say at face value. Because, yes, there were these different camps, but what I'm driving at here is more than just four groups of people following four different leaders. Instead, the divisions are more related to the composition of the Corinthian church. So the United States may be known as the great melting pot, but there, was no, there is no melting pot ideology in the ancient world. The Romans and the Greeks and the Jews don't just naturally intermingle or you know, become uh, one group. And so if you look a little closer at what I was um, saying there, I follow Paul, it's the Romans within the Corinthian church. When I follow Apollos, it's the Greeks within the Corinthian church. Or when I follow Cephas, it's the Jews in the, in the Corinthian church. There were these groups of people that made uh, up the, the Corinthian church. Ben Witherington uh, puts this into language that a uh, modern audience can understand. And he says, the diversity of socioeconomic levels and religious and ethnic backgrounds among the Corinthian Christians was undoubtedly an underlying cause of several of the issues and problems that Paul addresses in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And so are you starting to see a connection now between the Corinthians and the modern church? So many of the divisions of the Corinthian church were due to culture, economics, ethnicity, and politics. And guess what? So many of the divisions of the modern church are due to the exact same things culture, economics, ethnicity, politics, those kind of things. Now, what about that fourth group? I didn't touch upon that, the I follow Christ group. And this is the best one because they play the Christ card. So basically, this is the idea of, okay, you guys may follow these other Christian leaders, but for me, I'm just going to follow Christ. And because I'm of Christ, by implication, the rest of you guys are certainly not of Christ and clearly are not Christian. And so back at, at home in Rome, 
I get on the social media website face scroll and observe my friends and do this all the time. Get it, face scroll to you know, early six, anyway. Um, so my Roman friend uh, posts what he believes to be the definitive Christian view on a topic. And then I'll scroll down and I'll see my, that my Greek friend counters with a completely opposite definitive view, of, you know, Christian view on a, on a topic. And dare I ever jump in and try to suggest something otherwise, I'm going to get my head bit off. They maybe get flamed or get unfriended completely. Um, and it's just uh, the reality of, of that, that world uh, being online. Now I want to dive back uh, into the core part of what I was saying, and that is this section here uh, in the middle. And I guess it's kind of hard to see the bold, but basically that, uh, that you all, so I'm appealing to them that, that they all agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, what does it mean to agree with one another, that there be no divisions, that we be united in mind and thought? And I think this is where a lot of confusion can set in. Unity doesn't mean that all Christians are going to have the same opinion and beliefs about every disputed topic. The reality is on, on this earth, Christians are going to disagree on many tough issues. We are not called to be robots. What I am saying here is something quite different. Even when you and I do not see alike intellectually, we're still called to love each other and live in peace with one another. This unity and love is central to our mission in the world. And I like the way that Albert Barnes expresses this perspective, which really built upon what I was writing at to the, uh, to the Corinthians. And he says, this cannot mean that the Corinthians were to be united in precisely the same shades of opinion, which is impossible, but that their minds were to be disposed toward each other with mutual goodwill and that they should live in harmony. And he, keeps, and he goes on saying, union, union of feeling is possible even where people differ much in their views of things. They may love each other much even where they do not see alike. They may give each other credit for honesty and sincerity and may be willing to suppose that others may be right and are honest even where their views differ. The foundation of Christian union is not so much laid in uniformity of intellectual perception as in right feelings of the heart. And the proper way are to produce union in the church of God is not to begin by attempting to shoehorn all intellects, but to produce supreme love of God and elevated and pure Christian love to all who bear the image in the name of the Redeemer. So if someone or some group doesn't deny Jesus Christ as Christ and Savior, shouldn't you guys offer the same amount of latitude, patience, and grace that I'm offering the Corinthians here in, in my letter? Even if you fundamentally disagree with their politics, theology, or behavior? Here's a statement that uh, would get me, the Apostle Paul, in deep trouble, I think, in many of your churches today. That unity in the church is more important than any litmus test for theological or ideological purity. That statement goes completely against the Christian zeitgeist of 2019. But if you read my letters in the New Testament, it's implicit to what I and the other, apostle, uh, the other apostles 
are writing about. So how does one actually achieve unity in the church in 2019? Well, here's a possible starting point. The intent is not to try and reach agreement on these sweeping issues from various parties. Instead, it is to get Christians across the country to embrace what I think are pretty simple and modest statements. And there are five of them here. We agree on the core tenets of the Christian faith. We affirm the beliefs that have been central to the Christian church since the early century as expressed through the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. So basically the idea, instead of trying to deal with all the particulars, it's really, let's just focus on those core major issues about who Christ was, as, as that's the core thing. Second, we affirm the worldwide body of Christ. We agree that the church around the world, composed of people of all races and cultures, is the body of Christ, the representation of Jesus Christ in the world. Members of that body are joined together in Christ and follow Christ as head. So basically, just a reminder that we are the body of Christ. Third, we proclaim faith over politics. While we affirm that our faith will motivate political and social action, we agree that our mutual faith in Christ ultimately matters more than temporal political and social beliefs. Fourth, we agree to disagree. While we agree on the core tenets of the Christian faith, we recognize that there are deep differences of belief across the Christian church on vital issues of our day. And we recognize that sincere Christians have come to diverse conclusions based on their reading of the Bible, their conscience, their values, and understanding of the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Here's the hard part in, our, in 2019. We agree to disagree in Christ-like unity in these areas of theological, political, social, and economic dispute. And then finally, we agree to engage, engage. We renew our commitment to engage each other in a healthy, ongoing dialogue on disputed matters as we seek greater understanding of the issues, underlying causes, biblical perspectives, and ultimately each other. Now, wouldn't you think a statement, these statements like this would be pretty easy to embrace regardless of where you fall on these issues. In fact, it's not really taking sides on, on anything. Uh, Rich Wagner, I, you may know him, he goes to this church. Um, I think he stepped out for a minute. I saw him out in the hallway a bit ago, but he has sh actually shared this document with, um, well, or with a over a dozen well-known Christian leaders on both sides of the fence. And it's been surprising the amount of negativity excuse me, negativity, skepticism, and cynicism or indifference that has been met from each and every person that he has uh, shared that with. To me, uh, to me, it seems clear that your Christian leaders, whether you, whichever camp you're in, are not going to do this for you as far as unity goes. Instead, it's up to you and I to begin to seek unity, to avoid participation in divisive talk, and to engage other believers who we disagree with. So let's wrap this up. So I came to talk to you today to talk about the body 2.0, the vision for what the body of Christ is or should be in 2019. And this is achieved when the local church, Cana, is intimate and a universal church is united. 
see how they love each other. That was the quote that we started off with this morning here. That was by, uh, that was written by Church Father Tertullian, I think in the second century, uh, about a world amazed by the witness of Christians loving each other. In other words, the faith of the early church spread across the world, not because of, not primarily because of evangelism or missionary programs, but simply because people in that part of the world lived out the mantra, love God and love others. And I encourage you guys to do the same.